You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. Prayer is not just getting things from God. Prayer is finding out what is it that God's will, what does God want? What does he want to do? I'll give you a great example. Jesus, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Who wouldn't pray that, including Jesus himself? Is there any other way, Lord, but not my will, yours be done? And we know the Father's will was for Jesus to go to the cross. How will you know the Lord's will if you never take time to ask him? As you listen to today's message from Pastor Danny, he shares with you the importance of keeping the spiritual discipline of prayer strong in your walk with the Lord. Jesus would constantly be in communication with the Father. He desired his will more than his own. Pastor Danny encourages you to lean into what God has to say to you. Spend time each day in fellowship with him and listening to his will for your life. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of James chapter 5 with today's edition of The Living Word. James chapter 5, verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? Don't raise your hand. He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Elijah, powerful and effective in prayer, but he's just like us, human. Now, this is, for me, one of the most difficult passages in Scripture, and I'm not alone. And because it is so challenging, there are really varying differences on what God is really saying here. For example, someone I highly respect... But we would certainly disagree on this point. John MacArthur, I'll read you a quote from him. I'm convinced that the thrust of this passage has absolutely nothing to do with physical sickness or disease at all. It is not a passage about healing physical diseases. It's a passage about healing spiritual weakness, spiritual weariness, spiritual exhaustion, and spiritual depression, which calls for spiritual means, namely prayer. Now, the word translated sick can sometimes be used in the Bible 
for emotional or spiritual weakness. But the majority of the uses of the word sick are for physical infirmities. And so he's smarter than me, but I disagree with him nevertheless, uh, John MacArthur, on that point. What I'm going to try to do is go at this text in light of other scripture, and that's the way you ought to, ought to always interpret scripture. Uh, scripture will always interpret scripture. But before we get into it any further, let me let you know something that was enlightening to me from the text that I never saw, never really saw, especially as clearly as I saw it uh, this particular time through. Before I tell you what it is, uh, it would be good for me to read you from the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, you don't have to turn there. Uh, you can just listen. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1, there's a time for everything, and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search, a time to give up. Time to keep and a time to throw away. Time to tear down, time to mend. Time to be silent, time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Now, what is God saying through the pen of Solomon there? Very simply, he's saying, as life goes on, you're going to experience a lot of different things depending on what point of life you are in. And let me tell you from James chapter 5, what we just read, that I never really saw so clearly as I did this time. That in every question asked, in every situation, what God is saying to us is this is how you're to react as a person of faith, as a Christian. Are you in trouble? Pray. Seek God. Are you happy? The word means you're cheerful. I mean, you're merry. You're in good spirits. Then put in some doobie brothers. No. Sing songs of praise. Sing songs of praise. And if you're sick, and the word for sick means powerless, without strength. The idea is, this is serious. You can't really get around like you normally would. You may be bedridden. What do you do? You call for the leaders of the church to pray for you. And every response to every situation is a reflection of a focus on God and a fellowship with a family that's the family of God and the kind of fellowship where we're confessing to one another our failures, where we're praying for one another. Did you catch that? Very clear. Matthew chapter 12 records Jesus' family, his mother Mary, his brothers and sisters coming to find him because they think he's out of his mind. Uh, they get to where he is, they send a messenger in, and the messenger says, your, your mother and brother and sisters are outside, they want to see you. And here's what he said. He pointed to his disciples and he said, who is my mother and my sister and my brothers? He who does the will of God is my mother and my sister and my brother. Now, he wasn't trying to be rude or disrespectful to Mother Mary or his other siblings. He was just stating a truth, that the closest ties for the Christian Ties that go deeper than even blood can because we're of a family that's going to live together forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Are you with me? It's the family of God. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaks through this letter 
to the church of Ephesus. Let me read you what he says in verse 3. Verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, have found them to be false. You've persevered, you've endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Now, that's quite a, a host of commendation for this church. Verse 4, he says, yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, I'm going to take away the testimony that you once had. I have a firm conviction of what leaving their first love was. All you got to do is go back to the letter from Paul to the Ephesians, Ephesians, you go to chapter 1, you read in, for example, verse 15, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you. You get to chapter 2, Ephesians, verse 21. He says, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him too, you two are being built together. To become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole, fa whole family in heaven and on earth derive its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, long, high, deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You get to chapter 4, verse 2. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Put up with one another. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body one spirit. Then he closes out chapter 6, verse 23. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now hang with me on this for a minute because I think that's a message from James chapter 5. John 13, verse 35, Jesus said this, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now, I go back to Revelation 2 and all the commendation for the church of Ephesus, and those are, those are commendations. But I believe, again, if you look, it's just those few verses in Ephesians, you know what the height they fell from was. They got their doctrine down. They're persevering through hardships. They got a long history, a track record, but the relationships in the church are not what they used to be. And there are a lot of things that can cause a church not to be as relational as God intended for Christians to be. You can just be into your own family. You can be unwilling to forgive. Colossians 3.13 says, forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. That means no matter what the offense, they'll learn to forgive. He, he forgave us everything. And look at what we've done against him. And then just sin. Here's what I typed in. Listen carefully. Sometimes the failed physical and spiritual health of a Christian or even a local congregation of Christians is directly linked to an unwillingness 
to be open and honest about sin in our lives and to have the kind of close relationships where we regularly share with one another our failures and pray for one another for healing and restoration. I really pray with everything within me that God speak to someone, maybe a host of people today, They call Calvary Chapel St. Pete your home church. If somebody asks you, where do you go to church or what church are you a part of? Calvary Chapel St. Pete. You believe this is where God has you, at least for this part of your life. But if you weren't here next week, who would know? Who has your phone number? Who would be calling you? Who would be praying for you? If you ended up in the hospital, you understand what I'm saying? You need to be ministered to, but you also need to minister to others. I really pray that somebody hearing this scripture today and what God has to say today would make some decisions that set you on a path that you end up becoming relational and not just attending church. I really pray that. Now, the healing here, the prayer of faith, the person who's sick, powerless without strength. The passage intends for them to take initiative to call for the elders of the church. And again, the idea is this is something serious. That's why I don't practice anointing with oil for headaches. Now, don't misunderstand. Will I pray for you if you have a headache? Absolutely. God wants you to have a headache? Depends on how you treated me recently. <laughs> you know? Uh, we don't practice anointing with oil for toothaches. Will we pray for you with a toothache? Absolutely. And then I'll also say, if God doesn't heal it, go to the dentist. Okay? Here's what we know as we put other scriptures with this text before us today. First thing we know, here it is. The Bible does not teach that it's God's will for all Christians to be healed in this life. The Bible does not teach that. Job, repeatedly there in Job 1 and 2 Not only does it say that Job was blameless and upright, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless and upright. And yet God allowed Satan to afflict him physically. Terrible physical affliction. But it wasn't a direct result of Job's sin, and not all sickness is a direct result of sin. So the Bible doesn't teach that God wants every Christian to be healed in this life. The Bible also teaches that not all sickness is a direct result of sin. John chapter 9, you might be familiar with this one. Man is born blind. The disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? So they had this mentality in that religious environment. There was this belief, generally speaking, that if you're born blind, if you're dealing with this kind of infirmity, either you sin. Now, if the guy sinned, he must have did it and done it in his mother's womb. Or if he didn't sin, his parents sinned, and that's why he ended up like this. That was what they believed. And so Jesus says to his disciples, he didn't sin, nor his parents. Now, all sickness is ultimately a result of sin. If there was no sin, there'd be no sickness and there'd be no death. But there's some sickness like this man born blind that's not a direct result of his personal sin. And that's what Jesus said. No, this is so that God might be glorified. And of course, when Jesus healed him, God was glorified. Now, you flip that coin around. Here's the next one. Some sickness is a direct result of sin. I can't think of a, a better verse than 1 Corinthians 11.30. Paul said, some of you Christians in the Corinthian church are weak and sick. 
and some have fallen asleep. Some have actually died. And the idea is they died because of sin that was not dealt with in their lives. They were weak because of sin, not dealt with in their lives. They were physically sick. If you have a physical infirmity and you are a Christian, if you know there's sin in your life, I'm not talking about just a bump in the road. I'm talking about habitual sin. And you know there's habitual sin in your life and you're dealing with a physical infirmity, you ought to consider that if you really get right with God, he might want to heal you. Because that physical infirmity is actually a loving thing. It's like God spanking us. It's like he's taking us to the woodshed. And that's what 1 Corinthians 11.30 in the context goes on to say. If we judged ourselves, we wouldn't be judged by the Lord. As it is, we're being judged, disciplined, so that we won't be condemned with the world. In other words, God's spanking us, trying to correct us, something that's wrong. But if we're not willing to respond correctly to the spanking, God might want to heal somebody. If they just get right the sin in their lives. Well, here's another thought. The healing referred to in James 5 is dependent upon the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith. Now, don't be confused on these sub points here, but first of all, faith is a gift. Scripture bears that out. Faith is a gift. We wouldn't have the privilege to have faith if God didn't enable us to have faith. Now, that's a bit mysterious, but that's what the Bible teaches. Now, not to be confusing, but secondly, faith is a choice. Jesus in his own hometown of Nazareth, and it says that he could not do any mighty miracles there, only lay his hands on a few sick people, then they were healed. He could not do any mighty miracles there because of their lack of faith. And it says that he was amazed at their lack of faith. But a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. He was amazed. Jesus would have done mighty miracles in his own hometown of Nazareth, but they refused to believe. They refused to respond to what God wanted to do, but he couldn't do because they made a choice not to believe. But third, healing faith, James 5, must be in agreement with the will of God. You can't get any more clear than 1 John chapter 5. Let me read it. Verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, will he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. I'm going to clue you in on something. A big part of prayer is seeking to discover what the will of God is. That's a big part of prayer. Prayer is not just getting things from God. Prayer is finding out what is it that God's will, what does God want? What does he want to do? I'll give you a great example. Jesus, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Who wouldn't pray that, including Jesus himself? Is there any other way, Lord, but not my will, yours be done? And we know the Father's will was for Jesus to go to the cross. He didn't want to go to the cross, humanly speaking. He wanted some other way to secure the salvation of all humanity. But there was no other way. 
And so there's no more need to pray about that. Paul the Apostle. Here's a guy who did extraordinary miracles. I'm just looking for ordinary miracles. My goodness. God allowed him to do extraordinary miracles. He saw people heal. Miracle, all kind of miraculous things. One guy he killed by preaching too long. Remember Eutychus. He was up there in the fourth story there and the, the candles in the room. And Paul went on and on and on and on and on. You go, I know what that's like. I listen to you. No, but he died. all night he talked, and Eutychus fell asleep, fell out of the window he was sitting up in, and he, he was dead. Paul went and prayed for him. God raised him from the dead. He killed him and then used prayer to resurrect him. <laughs> all I've done for a lot of years is just giving you a lot of good naps over the years. <laughs> Paul the apostle, here's a guy who God used mightily to see others healed and miraculous things happen. And yet a thorn in the flesh from Satan. And Paul prayed not just once. He prayed three times. And the third time God answered him and God said, no, I'm going to keep you humble. And Paul would say to keep me from becoming conceited because of these great revelations God has given me. God said to him, my power is made perfect in weakness. And for the rest of Paul's life, he had to deal with that thorn in the flesh. He had to deal with that physical infirmity. And listen, you could have prayed for Paul all you wanted to, and Paul could have continued to pray, uh, but it wouldn't do any good. In, in terms of seeing the thorn removed, because God's will was, the thorn has a divine purpose. And so it doesn't matter how many people prayed. doesn't matter how many people fasted for Paul. God's not going to heal him. Because it was not God's will to heal him. So we want to find out, God, what's your will? What's your will? Here's another thought. Unconfessed sin would prevent the person's healing. And I've already mentioned unconfessed sin. And sometimes I believe there'd be more healing if there weren't so much hidden, unconfessed sin. And here's one last thought in the passage, right in the passage. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. That's so encouraging to me. I've never had anything like the ministry of Elijah in terms of the miracles. Nevertheless, I have the privilege, and so do you as a Christian. You don't have to, be, you don't have, to have a special calling on your life. You don't have to have some big miraculous ministry. John the Baptist never performed one miracle, but I'll tell you what, that guy knew how to get a hold of God. He was filled with the Spirit from birth. That's what the Bible says. That guy had a connection with God. He got through, but he never performed one miracle because that wasn't God's call for his life. But you can have, I can have, every one of us can have a powerful and effective prayer ministry. Now, before I close with some very practical suggestions. Let's just go through some thoughts, and this is what we've been through. Here's some, th some things to consider. First of all, how do I react in varying circumstances of, of life? And what we want to mature to the point of is that no matter what I'm going through, if I'm in trouble, pray. If I'm merry and in good spirits, I want to make sure I give God praise. If I'm without strength and powerless, and it's a crisis situation, before I call the doctor, I should call the elders of the church. That's what it says. Call for the elders of the church. Let them come. Anoint you with oil and pray. And if it's God's will, the prayer of faith will heal them. 
And if they've sinned, and the idea is if they've sinned, they need to confess it, and God's ready and willing to forgive them. And the implication is it might be that the sin is what caused their affliction. You've been listening to another edition of The Living Word with Pastor Danny Hodges. The Living Word is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Petersburg, Florida. We're so glad that you took the time to learn more from the book of James today. If you're looking for a New Testament book that's a lot like Proverbs, then James is your book. There's so many practical applications to take away from what's written. So what are some of the things that struck a chord with you today? And how do you intend to apply those to your daily life? If you enjoyed hearing from Pastor Danny today and would like to listen to other teachings from this series in James, then feel free to visit our sermon archive at ccfstpete.church. Just look under the resources tab. That website once again is ccfstpete.church. If you don't have a church to call home yet, we would love to have you come join us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship. We meet on Saturday nights at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. Feel free to come just as you are. Our mission as a church is teaching the word, reaching the world. We trust that this radio program is an integral part of that mission. As listeners are hearing these messages both near and far, our time for today is up, but we can't wait for you to join us again for our next edition. Pastor Danny will continue teaching through the New Testament book of James, Next time, here on The Living Word. The power of the living word. The power of the living word.